Good morning. You know, they say if you want to embarrass a Christian, ask them about their prayer life. Uh, it is often something that we struggle with, something that, uh, that we know that we should do, that in many ways we want to do, but in oftentimes we struggle to do. Sometimes I think we fail to realize that our prayer life is actually spiritual warfare, not just in the actual praying as spiritual warfare, but there's a spiritual warfare that goes on that, that hinders us from praying, that disinclines us to pray, that causes us to be more self-sufficient than we should be, not realizing the depth of our need the way we should, or not realizing the, the welcome, the invitation, the call that is on us to come into the presence of God. We're in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Here in the Word of God. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, that we would find grace to help us in our time of need. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have turned to you this morning. We have come. We have come because you are worthy, and so we have come to worship. You are worthy even now through your word. It is your word. It is authoritative. It is true. It is powerful. You speak it to us. Would you give us ears to hear? Eyes to see. Lives that are conformed to the truth that we find here. Hearts that turn to you in prayer at all times that we might find mercy and grace in our time of need. For we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I think that we struggle to pray because we're not always certain that the Lord wants to hear from us. In terms of where we are, whatever our struggles may be, however far we may have gone, whatever it is we've done, wherever we have been, We may struggle to grasp, we may dare to believe that God is still for us, that God is on our side, that He he wants to give us good things, not because you've deserved them. Sometimes we go when we think we we, we deserve to go, when we've been good enough to go, when when, when we think then he'll, He'll hear me today or right at this moment. We never deserve to go. He wants to give good things to us. And these three verses are proof positive that God has done everything that is necessary to encourage us to come to Him, to come to Him at all times. Because we have a great high priest whose name is Jesus, the Son of God. And so when He says, let us draw near, down there in verse 16, let us draw then with confidence near to him, right? When he says, let us draw near, that is the same as saying, let's pray. Let's turn our hearts to him. Let's go to him. Let's talk to him. He invites us. He wants us to come. You know, one of the devil's most effective strategies is to hide the goodness of God from us. 
that we think he is a hard taskmaster, that we think he is demanding and, and stingy and stringent on us. Somehow the devil sometimes convinces us that it's not safe to go, at least not right now. I want us to hear from Romans chapter 8, one of the high points of Scripture in my opinion. Romans chapter 8, just a few verses out of 15 that run through 33, it says this, that you, believer, you, church of Jesus Christ, you have received the spirit of adoption. You are sons and daughters. And it is by this spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. And if we're children, if we're God's children, he says, then we're then we're his heirs. We're heirs of God, of his kingdom, of his wealth and his treasures and all that he has. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That what Christ is an heir of, we have become an heir of in the, in the family of God under our Father. He says, those whom he has predestined, that is all those who have received the spirit of adoption, that's us. Those he has predestined, he's called and those he has called to Christ, he is justified through his blood and sacrifice and his resurrection. And those he has justified, he is glorified. And then he says, what shall we say to these things? What can you say to that? There is no greater, profounder privilege in the universe from its beginning to end in anything you can conceive, desire, want, or imagine that is greater than what I just read to you, that is true that you have been given the spirit of adoption. What shall we say to these things? And he says, this is what what we can say. If God is for us, if God is on our side, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him graciously give us all things? He wants to give us Good things. God, what this is saying is that God is willing. We don't have to talk him into giving us good things. We don't have to talk him into being willing to hear us. Just like your children don't have to talk you into hearing them when they cry out to you, come to you, looking for mercy and grace from you. It says, he argues from the greater to the smaller. If he, is, if he gave his own son, how will he not also give us everything else? He wants to give us good things. How will he not? He's already given the son. The great high priest who is the son of God. Zephaniah is one of those verses. Zephaniah 3.17 that I've struggled all my Christian life to Imagine in true faith and believe the situation in a gospel-centered passage in Zephaniah. He says, the Lord, your God, he is in your midst. He's here this morning. He is with you at all times. He is a mighty one to save and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with singing. It's hard for me to imagine that this is God's posture over me and my place under Him. Sometimes it helps me 
when I'm holding one of my new grandsons. I have two, about 21 months, 15 months. When I'm holding one and I get to put them to bed sometimes when we're up there, they let me put them to bed. And when they cling to you and they're struggling to sleep, and I sing to them. Sing every hymn I can think of. I sing all kinds of things to them. But it's this passage to quiet him with my love, to exult over him with singing, to give him good things, to grant him rest, to rejoice over him with gladness. Do you know that your God is a happy God? Sometimes we as Christians have a hard time imagining him as happy. But the joy that we long for is the joy that he has, the joy that is his all the time, that he is a happy God who delights in his children, who's on our side, who loves us. He's a better father than me, a better grandfather in that sense than me. He exults over his children. See, one of the great needs for us as Christians is to be familiar with Jesus and his promises as our great high priest who has gone through the heavens and sits at the Father's right hand for us. To understand the heart of God, that he gave his own son, how will he not with him give us all things? And so he says, come, let us draw near. He promises he is a source of peace and joy in the soul. There is a confidence and a boldness in our access to the God who sings over us and wants us to come, invites us. No, he exhorts us. He calls us, draw near, pray in your time of need. We'll talk about that. Come. Find the life, the hope, the peace, the mercy, the grace that you need. The author of Hebrews has been exalting Jesus before our eyes. Since the very first verses that we read in the book of Hebrews, he's been doing the same thing. He is exalting Jesus before our eyes, lifting him up to glorify him in our sight so that we would see how great he is for us. He's a perfect Savior for sinners. He's telling us he is in so many ways. He is, he is better than anything, greater than anything, than anyone. He is, he is someone you can put your hope in. You can put your trust in him. You can lean on him and you can believe that he's on your side. He is greater than the angels. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Joshua. And he is the great high priest, the great mediator between us and God who has gone through the heavens and sits at the Father's right hand. And he is sympathetic. It's the first thing he tells us in verse 14, right? He says, since then we have this great high priest that has passed through the heavens and is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, who is the Son of God, let us hold fast this confession because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. He's not unable to sympathize with our weakness. What kind of weakness? Well, all kind of weakness. But in particular, he points out in our weakness, he's one who has been in every respect tempted like us. In our weakness and our struggle with temptation and trials. So he is sympathetic. He understands in those kind of struggles. This is Easter. 
right? The one, the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He is the Son of God. He went to the very presence of God. Hebrews chapter 7, later in the book, we'll get there. He says, it is indeed fitting that we should have such a, a high priest. He's holy and innocent and unstained. It just said that he was tempted in all ways like we are, but yet was without sin. He is this perfect then, the perfect fitting high priest because he's holy, he's innocent and unstained, but he is separated from sinners and he is exalted above the heavens, but they're separated from sinners. He is for sinners and sympathetic with us. But he has entered into the true holy of holies. We have one who is actually in the very presence of God, the Holy One who's on our side completely. You know, at the heart of the Old Testament temple, we know that picture there, you'd have to pass through three or four outer courts to get into the very center of it. There was the outer court and sacrifice. There was the next court of the Gentiles, and you had to go through the court of Gentiles into the court of the Jews, and from, from there into the holy place where the priests did their thing, and you had to go through there. There was a thick curtain, three inches thick, woven, uh, separating even the holy place where the priests did their work from the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's Shekinah and His presence dwelt in the midst of His people, into that very holy of holies, this, that thick curtain which represented our sin. None shall pass. That's what that curtain said. It was thick woven from separating all the other courts, even from the priests, none shall pass into his presence. It's the holy of holies. But it was just a picture, an earthly picture, an earthly representation of the true throne room of God, the the true holy of holies, which is his His throne above the heavens, wherever heavens is, I don't know, up and down, around, but where it is, where God is, where God reigns, that is the holy of holies. And Jesus has passed through the heavens there. He's not like the high priest on earth going through that curtain backwards with a rope once a year after making atonement for his own sins. He had no atonement to make. He was yet without sin. He went face first into the holy of holies, into the presence of God, worthy of that presence. But do you hear that he went there? He is there in his human body, resurrected as our mediator, as our high priest. He now stands in the presence of the true and living God as our great high priest, our mediator, interceding for us. So he says, you can come. It's safe to come. When Jesus died, the curtain, that odd sentence, and I think it's Matthew where it tells us the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That thick curtain between the Holy of Holies and everything else that kept everyone out, that curtain that represented our sin, that curtain that kept us from being able to to enter the presence of God. It says when Jesus died on the cross from top to bottom, from God's side down, it was torn. And the way opened to the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 10 says this, we'll get there in some months. It says this, we have confidence then. Same thing our passage says. 
to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The judge is now your father. And he says, come. He sings over you and he delights in you. And the way is open. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by a new and a living way, not the blood of bulls and goats, but a new and living way has been opened through that curtain. And it is through his flesh. His flesh bore our sin in his body and tore it asunder. Since we have a great high priest who's over the house of God, we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. The way is open. And so he says, hold fast to our confession, to our faith, to our love and trust in Jesus as our great high priest, as our mediator into the very presence of God. It says he is sympathetic, that he cares about us. Right? That's an amazing thing that again as a Christian I have struggled on and off in my Christian life to believe he sympathizes when I am struggle the way I do when I continue to sin the way that I do to continue to fail the way that I do to continue to disappoint myself and I know I must disappoint him and to believe though that he's sympathetic that he cares about me so much even in my struggles even in the hardship That he feels to sympathize literally means to share in someone else's feeling, to to sympathos, to, to to have pathos with, to have feeling with, to care about, to share in someone's feelings, their suffering, their pain. And he says, Jesus has it for you, right, for me. He uses the double negative, you know, he is not unable. Right? It's an awkward way to say it in some ways. not unable, but it, you know, he's not cold and detached. He's, he's not distant and uncaring. He is, he is not those things. He is the opposite. If you were to state it positively then, Jesus is able. He's not unable. It means he is able. He's able to sympathize, to share our struggle, feel our pain. And what does he sympathize with? 15 tells us. Sympathize with our weaknesses. At the very place you feel short. At the very place you feel weak. At the very place where you struggle because of your weakness and your shortcomings. At that very place it says he sympathizes with us. In our weaknesses. Because he in every respect has been tempted as I am tempted, as you are tempted, as you struggle with your temptations, as you wrestle with them, and sometimes, sometimes no victory, and sometimes no defeat. But when we're tempted, he knows the frailty of our nature because he experienced it. Right? So he knows it. He was hungry. So maybe he was tempted to be hangry. He was hungry, right? He was, he was despised and rejected. He knows what it is to have people who are not nice to you, who are unkind to you, who speak down on you, who say things about you. He was scorned and shamed ultimately and embarrassed in front of crowds, stripped down to his loincloth and beaten and embarrassed and mocked. 
He was abandoned. He was accursed. He was betrayed. It's important for us to remember these things, maybe even now more than in years past, because you and I, as we live in this country, see things go in this way, that more and more Christians are treated this way. Well, they hated him first, and he said, they hated me first. So don't be surprised if they hate you. And the country has been moving that way from Christians being at least respected in their differences and for their moral stances, and you know, at, least, at least respected and tolerated, to now going to the point of, no, you're hateful if you believe that. Right? Now, we, we're, we've, we've moved in that to the position where they had Jesus, where they will crucify you for the things that you say and believe. But he says, I walked this road before you. Verse 15, he says, so hear this, it was tempted in all respects, all the same ways, faced the same kinds of testing, and yet was without sin. And he doesn't just know what you're going through. He experienced it for himself. There is no burden. There is no fear. Right? There's no struggle. There's no sorrow. There's no pain that Jesus did not endure already for you and before you. That he's walked the road ahead of you. And he says, now follow me and draw near. Because he knows and he cares. We've said a few times from up here that we might respond, but he never sinned, so how can he know my struggle? And that's been definitely the response of my heart time and again, where when I sin and I, and I think I've sinned in terrible ways, how can he possibly know and sympathize with that? He was a sinless, the Son of God. How can he sympathize with my failure? But he was tempted to the uttermost limit. See, when we're tempted, we often give in. So we never actually feel the full force of a temptation if we give in. We felt part of it, and then we gave in and gossiped and got angry and got proud and got whatever. And we, and we never feel the full force of it because we never resist it to the uttermost. Jesus said he resisted all the way to the uttermost. He resisted. He walked into the headwind of temptation and walked against it and walked through it and pushing against constantly his whole life, every day, every moment, all the way to the cross and to glory, pushing against it and succeeding. He knows the strength of temptation because he did not give in to it. Dane Ortland says his utter purity suggests that he has felt these pains more acutely than sinners ever could. And he knows it because then he also took the penalty of those failures and sins and bore them in his own body in a way that you and I can't afford to ever have to bear and that we won't have to because he already did. The full weight of sin and its temptation and in its guilt and its judgment and its wrath. He bore it all. But he says he did it for you. So he's on your side. That he's sympathetic. Hebrews 2.17, if you remember some weeks ago, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, in every way. Why? So that he could become merciful 
and faithful as our high priest. So we ought always to pray boldly. This is our final point. So we ought always to pray boldly. Right? What shall we say? As, as Paul says, what shall we say to these things? We should pray boldly. We should come. The way has been opened. The curtain has been torn. Right, A new and living way through Christ in his own shed blood. And he stands in the presence as our mediator, as our high priest. And what shall we say? We should come. What other greater privilege in the, again in the universe than for you and I be able to go into the presence of the Holy of Holies? Not only not afraid, but he says with confidence. With confidence. Pray boldly. Come without fear. Because your Father loves you. And he's done everything, everything necessary so that even in your struggles, you are safe in his presence. We can have confidence, not only in the work of Christ, which we've been talking about, but we can have confidence not just in the work of Christ, but in the heart of Christ, that he's for us, that he's sympathetic, that he cares Thomas Goodwin, one of the Puritans, wrote a little treatise or a book, short book, long treatise, however you want to say it. And he called it this, the heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners on earth. What do we need to know? Right? More than that. What is the heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners like me on earth? Struggling and sometimes failing and sometimes succeeding and longing to go in this direction. What is the heart of Jesus toward people like you and me? And he says, or it's also, you could say, a treatise demonstrating the gracious disposition and the tender affection of Christ in his human nature, which is now in glory unto his members as he is the head and we are his body, unto his members under all sorts of infirmities, either sin or misery. What is your struggle? And what is his heart towards you in your struggle? We see the tender heart of Jesus. So he says, draw near. Go to him. Answer the invitation. Take advantage of the privilege that has been given. The power that is offered, the grace. Come, you who are weary and heavy laden. And he says, I will give you rest. When you need help, come. John Murray says that although he is forever removed from the arena of conflict and temptation and trial and suffering, oh my friends, he has taken to heaven with him a heart that was forged in the furnace of temptation. Jesus suffered, and his heart is sympathetic. He is approachable. The way is opened. It is safe to enter. It is safe to go. So pray. He says, so pray. We see pray as a duty and a burden. Well, in some ways it is a duty. There's a way of it in heaven. It's this thing that this duty is the greatest privilege that ever has been given to a human being. That you can pray. 
that you could turn, stop and turn your heart and enter the Holy of Holies safely and know that you are heard and that your mediator is there interceding for you to pray. To speak to the Father in the name of Jesus. John Owen says that if we do not abide in prayer, we will, we shall abide in cursed temptations. If we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in cursed temptations. Jesus taught us to pray this way. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He taught us that prayer. He taught us to say these things to the Father, to, to draw near and to say these things. Our Father, who art in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, and the one who will not abide in that prayer will abide in accursed temptations. Because it is there, through prayer, that we find mercy and grace in our time of need, as he says. It is, my friends, a throne of grace. What an amazing statement. Do you think of the throne of God this way? Because we know the day of judgment comes, and we know, we know that throne, that justice will be dispensed. And yet he says, for you who have a high priest, such a great high priest. It's not a throne of judgment. He calls it there in verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to this throne of grace. It's a throne because a sovereign God sits upon it. Because Jesus is a king. Because he is Lord over all things and all people and all circumstances. It is a throne because he is a sovereign Lord and king. It's a throne, so we do not come demanding our rights. We do not come naming and claiming. We come humbly in the name of Jesus. Right? Do you know that when you pray in the name of Jesus, that it's not a period at the end of your prayer? Sometimes people pray, they'll pray their prayer, and when they get to the end, in the name of Jesus, amen. As if it's like a tack on at the end or a period. It's just how you end prayers. Right? It's just like the formula for praying, you know, and it sounds like a period, you know, Lord, I pray this, and I pray this, and I pray this. In the name of Jesus, amen. But let me just tell you something this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen, is the most important part of your prayer. And you should slow down and mean it. <laughs> slow down and mean it. In the name of Jesus is the only reason that your prayer will be heard. In the name of Jesus, it's because you have a great high priest who intercedes for you, a mediator, that you will be heard. And when you say, in the name of Jesus, you're saying, don't hear me for my own sake. Don't hear on my own account. Hear me because of Jesus. Hear me for the sake of Christ. Hear me through my mediator, my great high priest, who has paid it all for me, and whose blood has atoned, in whom I stand alone, forgiven, and acceptable. He is the only way. He is the new and living way. And it's what we acknowledge when we say, in the name of Jesus, it's the only way we got here to make this prayer at all. It's a throne of grace. Not a throne of judgment. He says there is no condemnation for those who come in the name of Jesus. 
Right? For those who come in the name of Jesus, it is a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace because the God of grace sits on it. Again, we, we don't always think of him this way. First Peter 5.10 says, the God of all grace. Any grace there is, if it is vast as an ocean and as high as the heaven and as deep as the depths of the sea, he is the God of all the grace that exists in the universe. It is from him and and through him and to him and given to us, it flows from him. It is the God of all grace. He's the one who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And he himself, himself and no other will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Which is why he says, come, if you need these things, draw near. And you will receive them. Restoration, confirmation, strength, and establishment, right? All that we need in the Christian life, he says, draw near with confidence. Because Jesus, the very Son of God, exalted through the heavens to the right hand of the Father, sits as a lamb that has been slain to cover your sin, completely past, present, future, cleans you, purifies you, sanctifies you, justifies you in his presence. The throne of heaven has become for you a throne of grace. If your faith and your trust is in Jesus Christ. Which is why he says, let us hold fast to our confidence, to our faith, to our trust in Christ. And my friends, we must understand it is a throne of grace for needy people. It's only a throne of grace for those who know their need. And the reality is, only those who know their need will go. And I fear that for myself and for you, as often or not, the reason we're not going is that we don't know our need. That we are needy. That we are weak and that we are sinful. That we are poor and that we are unworthy. That we need His grace moment by moment, day by day to strengthen me and establish me that I might bear the fruits of his spirit and joy and peace and patience and kindness, that I might be the man he wants me to be, the follower of Christ, the, the husband, the father and grandfather, that I need his grace to be what he wants me to be. And what can you expect when you pray? When you come, sinful, weak, and unworthy into his presence, Maybe overwhelmed by guilt and shame. What do you find? Verse 16. He says that we may receive mercy. That we might find grace. Draw near. In your weakness, you've got a great high priest. In your sin, in your fallenness, in your brokenness, in your struggles, in your failures. You have a great high priest. When you come in his name, it's safe. And he says, when you come, you will find mercy. You will find grace to help you. He's on your side. He, he wants to help us in our struggles, in his mercy to forgive, and in his grace to empower and to fill us afresh with His Spirit, to come near even as we draw near to Him, for Him to draw near to us 
in his grace and his power and his mercy to give us a fresh start, to renew us in our faith, to help us to see him as he is, that we may brush off and rise up, get back on the horse and head after Jesus. And when do we need him? As he says, you find Murray, receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. Is it a time of trial for you? What are you struggling with? Is it a time of temptation for you? What, what are you struggling with? What is your trial? What is your pain? What is your hurt? What, what is going on in your life? He says, whatever it is, it's time to draw near. If you want help in that time of need, it's time to draw near. Do you need wisdom? Do you need direction? Do you need guidance? Do you need counsel? He says, go. Seek his face. You'll find mercy. You'll find the help. Because apart from Jesus, if you believe it, and I believe the heart of prayer is this, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So abide in him. And you will bear much fruit. And one of the chief ways we abide in Christ through faith expressed in prayer. Where we are there seeking and finding all that we need from Him. Apart from Him we can do nothing. But as we draw near, we find the help. He gives the help. He graces us. Let me just say that the truth is, we may not always believe it, but It's always a time of need. It's not just the extremities and in that moment, oh, in a time of need, I'll try to remember to pray. Right? There's a reality is this. It's always a time of need. If apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. To parent, to be a good spouse, to be a good person, to be full of the Spirit, to be like Jesus, you know. Apart from Him, I can't do any of them. It's always a time of need. Jesus in 18.1, the scripture tells us that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Right? That's our text. We ought always to pray. Why? Because we're always in need. Right? We ought always to pray. And we should not lose heart when we pray. Because we know who's hearing us. We know who's mediating for us. The passage could also be translated as well-timed help. Not just in the time of need, but well-timed help. Timely help at the right time. That God's grace is not only in the answer of his help, but in the timing of his help. That he gives it at the right time. Not just when we ask it. I think you need it now. I think you ought to do this. And I think you ought to do it now. And I pray. But his grace is also in the timing of when and how he answers his prayer, our prayers. So let us hold fast. I end with this thought that in verse 14, he says, since we have this high priest who's passed through the heavens, right? The command in the midst of all of this is let us hold fast to our confession and let us draw near. And holding fast to our confession is this, our faith in a perfect Savior, right? Our faith in Jesus as the Son of God who has passed through the heavens and is at the right hand of the Father. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12, it says this, Christ His title, Messiah, Jesus, who is our Lord. This is our confession. Jesus Christ is Lord. In whom we have boldness and access, as he's saying here, with confidence through our faith in him. My friends, this is our confession. Hold fast to your confession that you have bold access to the Father through the Son, 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Mediator. We have hope in His name. We pray in His name. We come in His name. We stand in His name. And to hold fast means to pray with confidence, to come to the Father in the name of the Son all the time. Pray with me. Our Father, teach us that we are not as strong as we think we are. We are not as self-sufficient as we act day by day by the simple action of not praying. Teach us to pray. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray to our Father who art in heaven, whose name is glorious. Father, come near and open our hearts and let us see that the way is open into your presence. A duty an unspeakable privilege. Ultimately, our unspeakable need. Teach us to pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.